0: All right, welcome. This is the Friday Q and A. My name is Mike Winger, and I'm here to answer your questions with with the counter behind me. The first question we're doing today, and hopefully to give you a biblical answer to these questions, is from Susie Ann Stapper, who asks a very challenging question that I think we all understand. Um, Hi, Mike. How can I overcome bitterness and negativity? I've been disappointed in friends, family, and church people, which she puts in quotes, a lot. And I've found out it has been, a, um, excuse me, she says, I've been disappointed in family, friends, and, quote, church people a lot. And I found out it is it has a big impact in my life. Have a nice weekend. Susie Ann, thank you for asking a question that I, I think is relevant to so many people who are watching this. Um, the majority of us, really, when you think about it. So there's a million things to talk about with this. I'm just going to share some of the things, some pointers that I think will be helpful. There's other stuff that could be shared, of course, and I don't pretend my answer is comprehensive. But I hope that it gives you a biblical direction for some of these issues. That's that's like meat and potatoes. Like that's an answer that you could actually do something with. You can actually apply and live with this answer at least um, to deal with a lot of what you're talking about. I hope. So here we go. Um, romans chapter 12 verses 17 through 21 this passage deals with the issue of how we respond to those who have hurt us and wounded us and it gives us some i think some psychological help for the issue of our own bitterness so let's look at it in detail here we are it says repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all beloved Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Um, I just read straight through the passage, but I want to talk through it a little bit now in a bit more detail. So back in verse 17, we have this phrase, Repay no one evil for evil. This is this is the idea of, um, I, you know, obviously you're not talking about that, but I just want to mention it because it's in the passage, right? You you seem to be beyond that. You're like, I'm not trying to hurt them. I don't want to wound them for the wounds they've caused me, but I'm struggling with the bitterness that I feel as I rehash and think about these issues, as I rehearse the, the scenario again, as I have those silent conversations with just myself where I tell them the right way they should be treated, you know, thinking and acting and... Um, and perhaps these are horrible, grievous things that have happened over long periods of time, or or crazy moments of really depraved sin against you. So th- these can be intense issues. They could be little slights. They could be all of the above. But the the advice here, repay no one evil for evil, is kind of encapsulating the basic Christian attitude: is I don't want to fall into the same sins that they're doing while they do this stuff to me. So instead, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There's a whole Bible study in that verse. And then here it says, never avenge yourselves. Now, this is what a lot of Christians think about. They think about this idea, okay, never avenge myself. That's something I want to digest. I want to absorb. I want to apply to my life. I want to honor Christ by never avenging myself. Got it. Okay, it's different if it's justice from the government or from like laws. That's different. That's not me getting vengeance on myself for myself. Um, but there's more to the verse than that. It doesn't just say never avenge yourself. It says, leave it to the wrath of God. And this is the thing I want to remind Christians of is when somebody wounds and hurts you and you forgive them, this this doesn't mean everything goes away. It could, but it won't. You forgiving them will not make it all go away in the eyes of God. It makes it go away in your heart and the bitterness of your heart and the control it has on your life and the harm it causes you. But it doesn't make it go away in the eyes of God. God may still bring vengeance upon them. And when you say, I will not avenge myself, I will not. Then what you're doing is you're saying, I'm leaving it to the wrath of God. God will deal with this. His wrath is proper, mine is not. His wrath is perfect and holy, mine is always messed up. I will leave it to him. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Which is like a promise. God's saying, "Like I'm going to repay. Now, now, if they're in Christ, that payment for the, the vengeance, so to speak, that payment for the sin has been paid for on the cross. If they're forgiven by Christ, so God has dealt with their sin. If they're not in Christ, then they will stand before God and he will actually deal with them. And you as the Christian saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to return kindness for cruelty, I'm going to bless when I'm cursed. You're not undoing the fact that they still have to answer to God one way or another for those things. This is important to remember because all of a sudden, I don't feel like there's no such thing as justice in the world. I don't feel like there's no such thing as justice for the person who, who has sinned against me greatly, who has hurt me or, or, or harmed me. Um, it actually, for me, it makes me pray that they would come to repentance, pray that they would find forgiveness because I don't want to see them experience that if, they, if, if it can be avoided. Then it says, to the contrary, so our, our answer is, right, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. So we're to bless those who curse us, pray for those who spitefully use us. We're to love our enemies. just Those are the words of Jesus. So this is the counsel to us is that we actually have an active part to play. We don't just not hold on to bitterness, but rather we seek positive behaviors towards those who've hurt us. For me one of the ways I do this in a real practical way in my life um, when I feel bitterness which I absolutely have felt um, more than once in my life rising up in my heart towards another person I when I'm when I'm in my most spiritual moment I remember to pray for God to bless them or to even seek activities that would bless them if if there's a practical way of doing that in my life right some people they're actually dangerous to be around so don't go out there and try to connect with them but but um but if nothing else, I at least pray, Lord, bless them. I pray that you would lead them into truth and goodness and joy and peace. And actually pray for God's blessings on them instead of just praying about them. That's difficult sometimes. I have to Sometimes I've had to drag myself to that. But the more I did that, the more I watched my heart get soft towards that person. And the bitterness I'd felt slowly fell away. Um, it's I'm not saying it's a formula. Look, we're real people. We're not just machines. So it's not necessarily not a formula that's just going to fix everything. But for me, this is something that has been positive in my life to do. If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And then it has this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. What does that mean? Well, it means like, it, I, I'm going to take it this way. And, and I have done a study on Romans 12. But I think that the short answer is, by me blessing them, if they continue to be enemies to me and to Christ, then this will only increase the judgment they experience. I will have represented the love of Christ, the grace of Christ to that person, and they will only have more to answer for in the end. But hopefully they will actually turn from sin and they'll turn and, and be restored. Like this is this is the desire because Jesus will have then taken their punishment. So then the bottom line is don't be overcome by evil. And that's the part I think where you, in your question, you say, hey, I've realized this is having a really bad impact on my life. It's oh, Evil is overcoming you as bitterness rises up and sits with you for long periods of time. And you have bad attitudes towards people or whole groups of people like church people or just family in general. And it's hard to think of seeing their faces or gathering together with them in love. Um, This is evil that's overcoming you. This is the real threat that you have to deal with because they'll deal with their sins against you. They'll deal with that with God. But you have to deal with this real threat of this bitterness that's rising up in you. As we all do, this is the, the human state, right? Every time someone sins against me, there's two things going on. There's the sin they caused to hurt me. And then there's all the temptations I have now that I've been hurt to sin in response or to let something wicked take place in my heart. So instead, overcome evil with good. That's the goal. So God will repay. I think for the first section of scripture I wanted to talk about, and there's going to be at least one more I'll mention briefly here. God will repay. And and you have to take this seriously. If you think about it seriously, it actually, for me, it does get rid of some of that bitterness because I'm like, hey. God's going to deal with them one way or another. Like, he may deal with them in correction in life, instruction. He may deal with them in judgment if they don't have Christ. And here's the thing some of you might be thinking, and I'll just be honest, some of you might think, but they're Christians. These are church people. Like, and, maybe, and I think they're saved. I think they're Christians. So it bothers me that there won't be real judgment on their sins. I want you to slow down and hear your heart saying that. Because what you're really saying is you're bothered that the blood of Jesus is forgiving someone and that's why this is a huge danger to your spiritual life. This is why Jesus is like, hey, if you don't forgive others, neither will your heavenly father forgive you. Forgiveness is somehow super central in the Christian life in responding to God's grace and his love and his kindness. It's a really big deal. So, forgive. Let it go. Like this is not let me put it this way. You're looking at them and you're upset. Oh, I'm still bitter. I still feel bitter. I still feel bitter. Can you look at Jesus and let go of the bitterness? Like maybe you can't look at their eyes and release them, but you, can you l- look at Jesus's eyes who died for your sins and theirs and let, let his eyes be your inspiration for releasing that bitterness? That's what scripture is calling you to do. Let me share with you another another scripture because if you believe this, um, I think it will, it, will, it will aid you. It won't be like a quick fix. I mean, it might be a quick fix. We'll see. Maybe it's just a sudden release of bitterness and I pray God does that for you. But here it says in Colossians 3, 12, and 13, it says, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. This This is bearing with one another. If everyone was easy to get along with, Scripture would not have this encouragement for Christians to bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. Notice this, this part right here. This is Imagine if you take a sentence and you pulled this part out. If, 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 if this phrase, as the Lord has forgiven you, that was pulled out. Instead, it was just, forgive each other, you must forgive. That's all it said. But instead, God has told us, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And then you realize this is not between just me and them. I'm a Christian, so everything in my life is between me and Jesus and that thing. So it's me and Jesus in them. And the Lord has forgiven me. So that grace that I've received becomes my inspiration. The love and the kindness of Christ becomes the thing I'm trying to give a dim reflection of in the way I treat other people to give them forgiveness and grace. Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. Every time you look at them and the wounds and the hurt, you stop looking at them and you look to Jesus and that changes your attitude, and and the way that you can treat them, when 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 it regards bitterness, and the way you can think about them, and the way you rehearse the stories. Which hopefully you stop doing that, um, or at least do it less. <laughs> so, um, our emotions go up and down, but I think that we 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 just we don't want to feed those bitter emotions. We we want to react well when we feel them come back up. It's not like you just have to think, oh, I must not be over it rather than thinking of it being win or lose, think of it as being an ongoing thing where you continually take these issues to the cross, you continually take them to Jesus. So you might feel alone. A few other little encouragements I'd like to give you. You might feel alone in this, and here's where I think the entire book of Psalms comes to help you. When I say you might feel alone, it's like you might feel like nobody really knows the the, the pain I've experienced, or at least the people I want to understand me don't understand me. The people i want to understand my heart my hurt and painful heart they don't get it i just wish they understood you know that would make me not feel as alone psalms is so much of the psalmist crying out and pouring their heart out to god who truly understands their heart even though others don't and then the psalms will frequently end with them saying lord i just entrust myself to you i will yet praise you i will wait on you i will trust you that's your process for this if you're feeling that sense of aloneness to do that Psalm kind of process of pour your heart out before the Lord and then choose to trust and wait on him. He knows. He knows entirely. And for some of us, this is a sobering reality because he also knows when I've been wrong. Like sometimes you, you may have suffered horrible, horrible wrongs that were completely not your fault. And other times we're focusing on other people's wrongs when we've done something wrong as well. And we're, we're using their sins as ways of like covering up our sins. Right, like I'm just going to emphasize what they did and not me, but God does know, like He knows for real, like everything we've done. So then, this creates a sobriety in us when we like approach God in prayer. For for me, at least, so often I'll go to pray about somebody, and and I just it's this slow. It feels like pulling teeth sometimes. Is this process where suddenly I'm aware of my part in this issue, my sin in that relationship. How I did fail. And I and all of a sudden, I don't feel like just they hurt me. I feel more like, you know, we think we hurt each other. And then I have some work to do. It's not always the case, but that that does happen. And last thing I'll share for the sake of humility is for us all to think of it like this. Um, you, you can talk about the, the bitterness you're struggling with because other people have hurt you. But it might be sobering to realize that there's probably people in the world right now who could talk about the bitterness they're struggling with because of what you did. That sobers me up. To think that somebody else is like praying, Lord bless Mike, I pray you bless him, I'm really struggling with how I feel about him and how he did this and what he did here and how I believe or at least perceive he failed in this area or failed me. There are people who when they say church hurt, they're talking about you even while when you say church hurt, you're talking about them or someone else. That awareness might change how we handle these issues. Sometimes we don't do it wisely. (laughs) So anyway, I, I hope these things would help somewhat, give you some wisdom, some guidance. There is no lasting relationships without grace and kindness and the inspiration for our grace is always the eyes of Jesus Christ and his cross and not the person or our goodness. We look to Jesus and then we move forward. So let me go to question number two from your guys' questions in the live chat. This is from Douglas Diskin who says, would God forgive Satan if he repented? So there's a lot of questions like this about Satan that I've heard before in the past, uh, Douglas, which is like, hey, what if Satan never fell or um, what was the cause of Satan's sin, his first sin? or, like, could Satan repent? Or, which yours is a little different than could Satan repent? It's like, if he did, let's pretend he repented, would God forgive him? And um, here we have to admit something we're guessing. And so, well, when we ask a theological question like this and there's no clear biblical answer, I say, I didn't say there's no answer, I said there's no clear biblical answer. Like, the Bible never says, for if Satan would repent, this would happen. It never says that. So, what we what we can do is try to argue from what we do know to the unknown. So, like, I would imply I, I would say Satan probably would never repent. Like, at, at least there isn't really opportunity for this, it seems, because of the nature of the both the fallen angels and how they're sort of consigned to destruction, as well as Satan himself, who who we know his future. There, there is no restoration that's gonna happen. So it's like it's never going to happen. This is a hypothetical that we know will never take place. If Satan repented, would God forgive? Well, I know for sure that won't happen. That seems to be clear from Scripture, talking in Revelation about the future of Satan. But what if he did? Would God forgive? Um, I don't know. So the basis of the forgiveness that God has given in Christ, I'll weigh some of these options here. Try to try to think process this through biblical categories. The basis of our forgiveness in Christ is Christ and his sacrifice. Now his sacrifice isn't just like a sacrifice that is applied to like willy nilly to anybody. Really the sacrifice of Jesus, it works for humans because he took on human form. That seems to be really important that he actually became man, took on human form so that he could represent us all and die on the cross for us, for mankind. I don't think that that death was representative of or meant to include angels. So that would lean me towards thinking that the blood of Christ is not available to them. But there's no scripture that clearly says this. Okay, so I'm just like leaning that way. I don't. And and so we're hypothesizing about things that we know won't happen and trying to answer that question. It can make us a little reckless. But um, on the other hand, some would say yes. Well you know, the, the the world itself is also redeemed in a sense by Christ because he's purchasing back all of creation. So while he does it representing humanity, that representation of humanity extends to all of creation. So Jesus is redeeming and buying back the world, all of it. And so any non-human things that are part of that man-represented creation could be included in that forgiveness. And so in that you could, and I, I, I some are going to be like, what are you even saying right now? I'm like, I'm just trying to move quickly, but the the, the point is that there, here's a way in which you could hypothetically extend the potential grace of the cross to spirit, spiritual beings that aren't humans by saying that, yes, Jesus came to represent man to forgive mankind, but that's because as a representation of man, he's representing all of creation. Okay, so you could then try to extend the umbrella further of the potential the potential grace of Christ for something that we know won't happen. So. <laughs> So yeah, there's a couple like random things there. Um, I don't really know the answer to this question. I'm just trying to think within the lines of scripture on the topic. And uh, yeah, interesting thoughts. Tracy Swain says, you are a tremendous blessing. Well, thank you, Tracy. That's um, encouraging and slightly awkward. (laughs) So how do we reconcile Hebrews 9.27 with there also being a second death as in Revelation uh, 2, chapter 20, chapter 21. You know, Revelation, you guys know, talks about the second death, being cast into the lake of fire, that's the second death. Um, then it, she says, uh, is it one death or two? God bless you and your team. Uh, Sarah is awesome. Yes, she is, Sarah's is my assistant. She is, she's super awesome, super awesome possum. Awesome. Let's look at Hebrews 9, 27. And on your screen with the little button I push, okay. It says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So the the challenge is like, hey, if there's a second death in Revelation, why does it say in Hebrews that man's only going to die once? I think that the easiest way to respond to this is to say that we've added the word "only" into Hebrews. We've, we've added the word "only." It's not actually there. It is appointed to ma- for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. Now, after now, if you add Revelation in there, you have this. You have this addition. Um, man dies once. After that comes the judgment. If they. Don't have Christ and they're judged guilty, they experience the second death, the lake of fire. So, this actually would be just post judgment details about a second death. Right here is talking about dying once, that, that physical death. And so, I, I would just say I don't see a contradiction here because I think what we've done is we've maybe uh, subconsciously added the phrase only, man will only die once, but rather, is talking about the timing of things. A man dies and then he is judged. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins, will appear a second time. Um, he'll he'll appear to save those who are waiting for him. So I, I think that that might be the simplest answer for you on that. Yeah, and here's another little conundrum for us: is it says here in verse twenty-seven that man dies once, but like Lazarus probably died twice. Lazarus, who was raised to life, he wasn't raised. As part of the final resurrection with a glorified body that never dies, Lazarus was raised from the dead, like the little girl, or, or Jairus's daughter. Or someone he was. She, they were raised from the dead, but not with a glorified eternal body. They were raised in a body that would die again. So some would say, ah, contradiction. There's but actually, I just think we're what we're doing is we're we're approaching this the the text so woodenly that we're not understanding the point. Yes as is the normal custom for man, you die once and then, then you're in the afterlife, right? And you're going to face judgment. So is the case for mankind normally, right? Lazarus, of course, he died twice, but this is a special case. It's all right, that special cases. is... All right, forgive me, I'm just becoming... I don't know if I was a mafia member or, or something else. All right, let's go to question number four. Mr. Rosie says... What do you think about DNR? Do not resuscitate orders. I can't perform CPR on a patient when it could save their life because the order forbids it. Am I committing murder by honoring it? Um, so, you. I'm assuming you have performed CPR on on patients. So you, you must be in the medical field, or maybe you're a, you're an ambulance. You know. Uh, person, what do you call this? <laughs> what do you call this? Uh, ambulance guy, and so the, the this is this is a challenging issue because you want to be pro-life, you want to extend life, you want to push life forward, but I do agree that with our modern technology, what we can do is we can sustain life beyond any natural natural means in ways that it doesn't seem are good. And so there's times where there's people who are in, and I'm not talking about people who are just in emotional distress. This is where some people go in their head when I say this. I'm not actually talking about that at all. I'm talking about people who are lying in a bed, emaciated, they haven't eaten in weeks, they're on tubes that are trying to give them nutrients and food, they're forced breathing machines keeping them alive, they are bed sores and open wounds all over their body, they're unable to talk or communicate, and they're purely being sustained by these machines that are no longer a kindness, but are actually, it seems, causing issues. So th- this would be the kind of situation where someone is, it's, it's not, it just seems like it's not natural. Like there's a natural course of life and death that we're actually blunting with, with our technology at that point. So a DNR says, hey, do not resuscitate, is like, hey, I want to avoid being in that kind of scenario. In general, I would, I would, personally, I would say I'm okay with that because I think that if, if you ever think it's okay to pull the plug, ever, at any point, where they go, okay, hey, we're gonna stop trying to keep them going, we're gonna give them palliative care, we're just gonna try to make them as comfortable as we can. If you ever think that point is real, then I don't know how you could argue against a DNR, because a DNR is just letting people say, I'm gonna decide for myself when I think that point is. Okay, so th- that, that I think seems right. Now, there might be situations where someone has a DNR and they've made a bad decision. I don't really know that you're in an ambulance in a, any position to to decide for them at that point, right? Like make an off-the-cuff decision. I know what they say, but I know better. And you don't know their life, you don't know their history, you don't know the reasons. So, yeah, a DNR is not murder in and of itself because the person's already, they're not breathing, they're already effectively like at a state of death, and you're doing CPR to try to revive them, to try to bring them back. But CPR itself is very, very violent. I don't know, a lot of people don't realize this, but if for those who have known ambulance dudes, um, CPR a lot of times done on elderly people involves a lot of broken ribs, and and blood and damage and harm that takes forever to recover from that can exacerbate medical issues more. And so I'm just saying, it seems like an issue that at least in principle, I would support the, the possibility of having a DNR for someone to say, Hey, yeah, don't do everything medically possible. If I die, you can let it happen. So therefore, with that in place, I would honor any DNR that came across me personally. I would honor that. And I would say this was their decision. It's not on me. I'm honoring their decision here about their own body. Unlike, say, abortion, which is a decision... We pretend is about the body of the mother when it's really about somebody else's body. She's making a decision to kill the baby, not a decision about herself. So for those in the back of your minds, who are like, "Hey, he's really making a case for abortion." It's just it's just because you're thinking that this is only about one person when it's really about two. Um, all right, we'll go to question number five. Hot wax ninety three says, "I've heard people quote Genesis two seven, usually from the King James version, to show that a soul." can't live or exist without both body and breath is this an accurate understanding if not why okay so this comes up a lot in actually um, abortion discussions which I just briefly mentioned and they'll say hey human life doesn't begin until the first breath Genesis says it right there Genesis 2 7 let's read the passage then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And notice what happened next. The man became a living creature. So if you take that logic, then you're saying, you know, man became a living creature when what? When he started breathing. Therefore, if until you're breathing air, you are not alive. You are not a living creature. You're not like a full-fledged thing. You're just maybe a clump of cells, someone might say. <laughs> And so um, some would say this there's several issues with this. Um, I will look in the King James because you mentioned people do that. Let's um, Look at the wording here. It does say uh, man became a living soul Okay, so yeah, the the word soul is used in the King James Which is why they prefer that because they're trying to say they don't have souls until that point Let's offer a few problems and pushbacks with this with this approach okay for one thing If you really want to go whole hog and take verse 7 as meaning this is when human life begins, then human life begins when you are formed of the dust of the ground. And when God personally breathes into your nostrils the breath of life and you become a living soul, which means that ever since Adam and Eve, there have been no living souls. Because what we're doing is we're taking half of the verse and we're making it a rule for all of mankind, but why are we ignoring the other half? Why don't you have to be formed of the ground? Right. Oh, because I, that's not convenient for my purposes to say that, that you don't get a soul until you have breath. Okay, that's suspect, right? But there's other issues too, which is this is descriptive of how Adam was made. It is not a description of how all humans come to existence. Adam, can, can we grant that Adam came into existence in a very different way than most people do? Adam was made of the ground. Humans are made through reproduction, typically speaking. So we have a different, different format for how we go about being created. For instance, when Adam was, his body was created on the ground. If you take a very straightforward, you know, approach of, of understanding Genesis here, which is what they're doing, I think. Adam's made of the ground. Is he moving? Is he kicking? Is he thinking? Are his hands moving around? He's not doing any of those things, is he? He has then breathed the breath of life into, and now he comes becomes alive. So this is uniquely different than, say, a baby in the womb who has like a heartbeat at like, what is it, six weeks? Twelve weeks? There's I can't remember. It's super early when, when infants have uh, heartbeats. Where they respond to light or their mother's voice. And you're going to tell me that they're like Adam when he was lying on the ground completely immobile? Okay, obviously, there's a, there's a significant difference between normal human, develop, human development and Adam's development here so then there's this idea of well breath it's breath breath when you breathe that's the idea even like spirit can even mean breath in the in the in the greek and in the hebrew the word it can mean breath or ruach you know the hebrew word it can mean breath and spirit um there's a problem with this view as well and and one of the problems with this view would be that well babies are breathing too <laughs> they're breathing in the womb they are. And so this is, they're not completely like without breath. So if you want to use breath as a standard, oh, is it only air? Like only if you're breathing air, do you have a soul? Like, well, what if you get put on that? There's actually this like liquid substance. that's like amniotic fluid that, that humans can breathe now. It's, it's horrible. There was an old movie where they made him do it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that that's possible. So if I was to put you on this amniotic Substance and you're breathing that as a human. Do you now no longer exist? Are you not a person? Is scripture trying to tell us that this is the moment when all life begins, or is it the moment when Adam's life began? Obviously, it's Adam's life. So another pushback to this could be the following. When in Luke 2, um Mary is pregnant with Jesus and she goes to see Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John. But they're not that far along at this point elizabeth more so than mary you know a a few months more than mary but that's it so they they go to visit each other and there was a prophecy over john that he would be filled with the spirit from the womb he now can you say that he will be filled with the spirit with without the the him who is filled with the spirit being a person that's kind of hard to say it's difficult to say so when mary goes to see elizabeth she's filled with the spirit which we would say also both of them are filled with the spirit and the baby leaps in the womb like he he kicks like does this movement because there's something that the holy spirit's trying to tell them through this baby through John the Baptist as he in the womb is already testifying of the of Jesus the Messiah it's kind of an amazing thing when you think about it so was John alive he was he was dead he was not a living soul at that point as he's filled with the spirit and he's testifying of the Messiah and who is he testifying of Mary's filled Mary is has Jesus in her womb, but you're telling me Jesus doesn't have a soul? Or like he's not a full fledged, you know, human or a full person or something like that? Like that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like that means that Mary could have like aborted Jesus at that point, and there's like no moral issue there whatsoever because you know he's not really breathing yet. He's not really there, there's no incarnation yet. But there is an incarnation. There, there's God in the womb of Mary. And so Elizabeth greets and says, um, calls Mary the mother of my Lord. She's already a mother. She's already a mother. But she hasn't given birth yet. She doesn't have any children, any real children yet, as far as like the the pro choice I would like to say. I think that those things don't fit scripture. They don't fit a biblical view of things. And there's other things we could say, but that's some stuff that might give you guys, hopefully, something to think biblically about. We'll go to question number six. And we have all 20 questions for today, by the way. Um, We've taken them from your guys' live chat stuff, and you can, if you ever wanna ask a question, just try to show up when the live chat first opens, or I should say, not when the live chat, but when the video first begins. When you see me on screen, that's when you wanna send that question in, and we try to answer as many as we can every time. You can even go to the website BibleThinker.org and look at all the backlogs and search for specific questions you're interested in, and things like that and stuff. And number six, Scott Craig says, why did god decide to have a chosen people was this due to his will to have a people that his son would come from um so there are a few reasons i I don't think we could say there's only one reason you know scott and if we were going to give one reason we could be like jesus you know that's it's like the good default reason there for why god had a chosen people but there's a lot of reasons Um, so let me list some of them that come to my mind as, as, as you ask this question and i think about it for the you know, on the spot. So one of the reasons was that God wanted to demonstrate his glory to the nations around Israel by making them a light scripture says to those nations. So the idea is when they obey my laws, when they keep my ways, I will bless them and it will show this world that's in rebellion to God that a right relationship with God brings blessings and joy and peace and this sort of thing that God's ways are good. And that these idols that those, those other nations have are false because they will see Israel shining and they'll go, wow, the God of Israel is real, is real. <laughs> Get it? Um, that's one of the reasons. Uh, another reason was, was so that genealogically Jesus would come, but he could have picked anybody for that. So there's a lot more going on there. Like he could have just picked a random person in the first century to have Jesus, but he picked a whole genealogy of people with like a Davidic line and all these promises. And you start to realize, oh, there's a lot more going on here. God wanted to prophesy the coming of Christ and lay the way for the coming of Christ. And he used the people of Israel to do this in a number of ways. One, he showed them constantly failing. They fail continually in the Old Testament. They fail on- ongoingly, and just as we all do, to demonstrate that by our good deeds, we will never make it. We need a Savior who will take on our... Um, our sin and who will live the holy life for us and so they live as this like read the book of judges like and like it just gets worse and worse and worse the rebellions of israel point to christ because they show the need for even the, the nation that's supposed to be the light of the world they need someone to be the light of the world for them the nation that's supposed to walk in purity and holiness they need someone to purify them and make them holy and so then jesus is that but there's so many more reasons right there's this davidic line there's this, there's this this, King David stuff going on, and we have these typologies through Moses and David and Solomon and Jephthah and all these different people in the Old Testament who represent Jesus in different ways so that when Jesus comes, we'll understand who he is better. We also have the carrying of the laws and, and the scriptures from the Jewish people. So this is a brilliant thing God did. Um, if you want to bring the son of God into the world and have a way of testifying to the world that, that he's genuine, that he's real. One thing you can do is you can point backwards to a number of prophecies that have been coming that he is now fulfilling. So they're carrying the old Testament and carrying the scriptures without the Jewish people, there wouldn't be a Bible there would be no old Testament without the old, there'd be no new. So what we have in the old Testament carried because God had a chosen people is all these prophecies of Christ. What we have in the Jewish people is, I could say it's for Jesus, right? but it's multifaceted. It's like a diamond. You can examine from a a dozen angles and see it. So I think those are some of the reasons um, God chose them ultimately to glorify himself and to point the world towards Christ, and he did this in a hundred different ways. So let's go to question number seven. This is from Luke Candon, who says, Is it a sin to tick a box? Oh no. Oh no, Luke, you ask such a hard question. Is it a sin to tick a box that says, I have read and accepted the terms and conditions without having read them first? For example, when installing software, keyword being read, that would be lying. Yes. Well, look, look, oh, okay, look. This is something I, like other people, you, you people, some people have never even, it's never even occurred to them. And they think it's silly that you would ask. I do not. I do not think it's silly. And for those who it, it's never even occurred to you, um, I wouldn't too quickly dismiss those who are struggling with moral implications of their decisions. Um, that's something we probably should do more and not less. So, in one sense you're like, yeah, you you did not read and accept the terms and conditions. You did not read them. So why, you know, how can you click the box? And then if you're gonna read them, you realize these terms and conditions are 12 million pages long. It's gonna take you six months to read it. Just, you, I just, you know, we I got a new computer, I didn't install the software. So how many things that I had to click, I accept, I accept, I accept the terms and conditions. Usually it doesn't necessarily say I've read, but sometimes it does. I didn't read them though. How did I justify that? As I as I thought the same question as you, Luke Cannon, um, I thought to myself, everybody knows we're not reading this. <laughs> what they really know is legally I'm giving up a right to appeal based on ignorance. Like everybody knows that the wording of this says one thing, but the meaning of it is a different thing. And this is the and you guys can judge for yourselves whether you think this is proper justification. Um, When I say everybody knows what I mean is we all understand that this phrase doesn't mean What it what it says? Um, There's other times where we have this sort of thing the um, I've been driving forever Well, that's a lie, isn't it like you said you've been driving forever, but that's a lie, right? But everybody knows that I don't mean forever So then there's no perception of lying like the company that writes the document they don't even expect 1% of the people to actually read the the stuff that they're when they click it they don't even expect them to read all of this all this paperwork i think that's one of the reasons why they make it so long so you won't read it maybe so everybody knows that this this is a well understood thing um, so th- to me that changes my pers- perspective on this and i go yeah i don't really feel like this is a wrong thing what I, what I am doing, what everybody also knows I'm doing, is I'm giving up a right to appeal because of ignorance. So I'm accepting these conditions. I realize there may be stuff in there that I haven't looked at, and I'm willing to be like, okay with that. And that's what I think we're committing to with those things. So that's my answer on that. I'm interested to hear your guys' responses to that. Do you think that that's a reasonable and morally upright way to handle that issue, or do you think you have to read all the iTunes terms and conditions? Number 8 daily obedience says is Christian entertainment like The Chosen a violation of the second commandment are things like Sunday school lessons hurting our theology by the pictures of things or people um okay there's there's two questions here that are I'm going I'm going I'm going to just address how they're connected okay so I'm not talking specifically about The Chosen I'm not talking about specific types of pictures I'm talking about the issue of the second commandment and whether it means that you cannot have, say, a ar- picture or artwork of Jesus, or artwork of the apostles, or of an angel, or something like that. And I used to think that, I say that I thought this when I was a teenager, um, I felt like, you know, you shall make no graven images, right, that, that, um, that this applied to kind of like all artwork that was related to God. I think I was really mistaken though, and as I read more of the Old Testament, what really shocked me was when I when I got into Exodus and I read about the tabernacle and I saw, and it was like this weird moment for me, right? The, the, there was cognitive dissonance in my head because I read in the scripture where it said that in the temple, they had fabric where they put images of angelic things. And there was like this ark where there was these, two angels with wings stretched out towards each other in the middle of the temple, like a place of worship, no less. There was nothing between them because there was nothing to represent God's presence, but they actually were instructed by God to sculpt, craft these 3D images of angelic things. So that's pretty interesting. Why, why, why is that when the second commandment says not to make images? Actually, the second commandment doesn't say not to make them at all. It specifically says not to make them and bow down to them. They cannot be involved in being, your worship cannot be directed towards them. So these angels and stuff related to the temple are to represent the fact that the temple is like where the presence of God is. And it's kind of like heaven on the inside is sort of the feeling of the temple. And so you have these angelic things going on, but you don't have any worship directed at those angels. You're not, the worship is not assisted by the angels. They're merely there in representation of something. So that's, that's significant. Like if the, if the um, priest had gone into the tabernacle and was burning incense to that angelic picture, that image, that would be a problem. If he went down and he started kissing it and praying and touching it as he prayed, that would be a problem, but he's not. It's just there to represent a, a heavenly reality. Um, so it turns out that artwork in the temple was good even, and artwork outside the temple is good too. I don't think we should do images of God for the nature of an image of God is that it will utterly misrepresent Him because He doesn't have a physical body like this. What about an image of Jesus? I, I I think that this can be acceptable, but it can lead to weird things. It depends. Let's say that you watch The Chosen, and then one day you meet the actor who's playing Jesus, his character, and you and and somewhere in the back of your head you're thinking, oh, he's so holy, and I just I just want to touch the corner of his garment, you know, I just want to go and. I just want to touch his hand. I want to get him to pray for me. I'm like, now you're delusional. Like, you've you've actually gone to the point where you don't realize he's like a faker. Like, that's what actors are. They're fakers. He's just a good faker. He's trying to fake this part to teach lessons, but he's not real. Like, <laughs> like then none of these guys are spiritual based upon the personas they put on, on a TV show. I think that, that that's just healthy to treat them like normal people. Um yeah. So I, I don't know if that, that helps you a bit. Sunday school lessons are, are images in our Sunday schools hurting our theology because of the pictures. If the pictures are misleading, they can. But you have to understand, too, that we learn at different stages and levels. You know, like a four-year-old child doesn't need to have an uber-realistic depiction of biblical events in order to start learning the first layer of their understanding of those things. Um, but if they carry on like a lot of kids they they get education in sunday school and then they leave church and so all that's left in their head is this like really sunday school level understanding of christianity and then they they think it's silly because they were silly when they tried to understand it they had little brains and they grow up and they try to throw adult questions at a child's understanding of christianity that happens a lot but that's not just because of the images i don't just want to blame like. The images, like it, there's a picture of Jesus walking on the water, or maybe there's a picture of <clears throat> um, Jesus multiplying the bread, and there's something in it that is not accurate. Like I, I'm a little more flexible on this stuff. I don't want to nitpick too much people who are doing their best to serve the Lord. All right, let's just go to the next question. I don't know if I fully answered that one for you, Daily Obedience. I hope that I shared something helpful. Kenna Lynch has a question. Um, how do you interpret Second 2 Thessalonians 2.13? 2, in light of the debate on the doctrine of election. Thank you for your work. It is a huge blessing. Thank you, Kenna. And um, I will go to that passage now. Second Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.13. It says here, We are bound to give thanks always way to God. Hold on. Let me, let me go to the ESV here, just to get out of the King James Version. Uh, not that it's bad, guys. Okay, don't, don't spaz out. Uh, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. So the, the idea here could be like, hey, God has chosen you. Um, and I can see why I'm trying to think of how like a Calvinist would use this passage in a robust way okay there's a not robust way there's a not robust way that maybe some people would use the passage and they'd say look it says that god chose them so therefore they were chosen and that's calvinism god chooses you but that's actually not calvinism um calvinism is is saying more than that it's saying that god chose you and that you believing in him happened after your regeneration after. This is one of the key issues that even R.C. Sproul said was one of the key issues in Calvinism. If you understood it, you understood a lot of the debate. In Calvinism, there is a belief that you believe in God as a result of God regenerating you. This is like that moment where you become a new creation in Christ, right? You're filled with the Spirit, right? You're indwelt by the Spirit, and you're a new person. You're forgiven, and you're given a new heart. Now, you can't help but believe in God. So that faith comes after regeneration or as a result of regeneration. Some will say it comes at the same time, but the point is that it comes as a result of regeneration, not you have faith and then you're regenerated. So let's read this verse again and ask if it says that. And the answer is going to be no. Um, but we always, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you, I would agree with that, as the first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. I actually would say this verse may lean against Calvinism because that last part. How did they get saved? Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So that believing was somehow an active cause of them being saved. Not a result. A cause. That seems to be something that's there. So God chose you, but you also believed. And that that was one of the things that caused you, right here, to be saved. So I would actually lean this verse towards a a verse that would perhaps challenge the Calvinist doctrine that regeneration comes before faith. There we go. Let's go to question number 10. Um, This is from Levi Hoffman who says, Hey Mike, I love and appreciate all the work you do. Thank you, Levi. Uh, my question is about the incarnation of Christ. Since He was bodily raised from the dead, does that mean He will still um, He will still be incarnated in heaven? He will still have like a physical body in heaven? And I think the answer is is probably. <laughs> so uh, let me let me answer it more carefully though. So we know that Jesus was physically raised from the dead, and that this physical quality of His resurrection is super important in Christian doctrine. He was bodily raised. That's like a super core important doctrine to Scripture. In Scripture, this is a really big deal. Those who denied the bodily resurrection of Christ or Gnostics who came, like, like you know, they're really active in the second century. The These guys were denying the bodily part of Jesus, sometimes his resurrection or sometimes even his physical body. There's a story in a Gnostic gospel where Jesus walks on the beach with one of the disciples. It's like the footprints in sand story. And uh, it's false, right? This is this is they were making this up to teach their false doctrines about Jesus, um, and they're walking on the sand, and there's two sets of footprints, right? Or but but there's not there's two people, but when they look back, there's only one set of footprints. But it's not Jesus; he leaves no footprints because they're trying to teach that Jesus didn't really have a full-on physical body. Other Gnostics would teach that the whole idea of the death of Christ was to get rid of the physical body. Like um, one Gospel of Judas would say that uh, Judas. Helped Jesus by helping to get him killed to get rid of that physical body. It's it's, it's blasphemous. It's horrible It's not Christian and it doesn't fit first-century Christianity, but You get the idea that the bodily thing is kind of important and early Gnostic teaching would come against that specifically because of their beliefs So Jesus is raised bodily so in, in the eternal heavens though We will or the where, where heaven meets earth. We're all going to be in bodies all of us Jesus and you and me, all of us. But God's presence will also fill the place so much that you won't even need light because of his incredible presence filling and bringing joy and peace and fullness of just wonder at all times. Um, so it'll be actually absolutely glorious. But then you've got the question of now. Okay, that's, that's the then heaven. I did this in last week's video. I talked about like now heaven and then heaven or eternal heaven. Eternal heaven is like heaven meets earth. And yeah, there's physical bodies for all of us, uh, including Jesus. What about now? Is Jesus in a physical body right now? Well, he ascended physically. Scripture says he ascended physically in, in Acts. You know where he departs from the disciples and he goes up to the Father. There he ascended with a physical body. So either he has a physical body now in this temporary heaven, or or what? Or or the, and, and I, I've heard one philosopher theorize. Christian philosopher, genuine believer, but strange theory in my opinion. He has his reasons. That Jesus's body comes into and out of existence as needed. And so that he's like not embodied. He has a body, but he's not using it. He's not embodied. It's kind of like, it's just sort of not around until he needs it for some purpose. And then he kind of like uses it again. I find that to be a bit of a stretch to, to my gut. I'm just saying, look, I know this. In his physical earthly form after his resurrection, he definitely had a real body. It was glorified body, it wasn't the same, so there are some differences and maybe there's some kind of ability there to, to um, it, it, like have it come in and out of existence or something. Like, but there's no evidence for that. You could just say, maybe, what if? But then we have in the new heavens and new earth, Jesus has a physical body. Or so it seems to me. That's my, my, my understanding of my belief here. And I don't, it seems really weird if you start saying he doesn't. It seems like it challenges some core Christian things. Um, so then why think that in the middle he doesn't? Can God create a situation in the eternal heavens where, you know, I, would, I generally imagine spiritual beings being there, not physical, where there's a place for the physical body of Jesus at the right hand of the Father? I think he can. And I think that's probably what happened. All right, we'll go to question number 11. Rex Carden says, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Are the... Sorry, there's there's this weird number on the screen. Okay, don't worry about my issues, guys. All right, sorry. Um, you were not your own. You were bought with a price. Are the buyer and the seller the same person? Is God buying the people from himself? Oh, um... Is God buying the people from himself i don't think i don't think so no um, but but where is it that we see that there is actually a seller so we might be we might be we might be pushing the analogy too far when we say that there's a seller. you were bought with a price definitely there's a cost, but was there a seller so imagine this um you were trapped up on a mountain, you were sent there because of some, whatever, Some somebody put you there, some bad thing you did or bad thing they did or whatever. And in order to get you back, I had to spend a bunch of money on mountain climbing gear, then I had to go and I had to climb up the mountain and get up there and I had to get you down. And it was all very expensive and maybe I suffered a lot and maybe I was even wounded. I lost an arm because of frostbite or something horrible like that. And then I could say to you later, like, you know, your freedom was bought, you know, not you, your existence, but your freedom was bought with a price. And you might turn to me and say, well, who did you buy it from? And it it might be like, well, that doesn't really work with this analogy because it's it's more that there was a high cost for what, for, for buying you back than there was a person I was paying that cost to. Now you could say, well, God satisfied his own justice through Jesus on the cross. And that would be true. But does that make him the one that the buying, he's buying us back from himself? I think that's a clumsy, uh, you know, way of approaching the analogy. In order for there to be a buying and a person being bought, it doesn't mean that there had to be somebody that was getting paid. Um, There had to be a price being paid. You you could try to say it was the Father because, uh, or God more generally, because, um, Uh, jesus presents himself as an offering but that offering is is not payment to the father in the sense of like an exchange of goods this offering is suffering for sin to satisfy justice which is different this is different so i'm just saying i think what we're doing is we're taking analogies in scripture we're mixing them together and creating something that might be a little a little bit different than what god's trying to get at there um I'm trying to avoid getting into ransom, the ransom theory of the atonement. You can look at my series on Penal Substitutionary Atonement if you guys are interested in that. (laughs) All right. Uh, Number 12. Daniel Williams says, Our altar calls biblical. Hard to find much of this in the New Testament. Hard to think this through without preconceived notions. Thanks, Pastor Mike. What do you guys think? Think about this while I drink some wonderful water from from a Brita water filter. Brita, Brita water makes better water. I'm not endorsed. I'm just... I'm, maybe I'm just tired and being silly. Okay. Daniel Williams. Um, are altar calls biblical? Well, there's different versions of biblical in our heads. So there's the, are there examples of altar calls in the Bible? And then there's the, um, are altar calls consistent with what we see in scripture? Or perhaps you can even say it's unbiblical if it's actually contradictory with something we see in scripture and uh, there's been a lot of heated discussion over the past few years at least in some circles on the topic of altar calls understandably because um here's the downside of altar calls before i get into the biblical part of it um at least my perceptions of this again the goal of this isn't uh, for you to learn the answers that i have i try to hopefully talk through these issues in a way that helps you see the process at least my process of understanding how to think it through biblically so that you can learn that process more than you learn my answer to a specific question, because that process is where the value is. And then you start doing this on your own, and you're like, I don't even need to know whatever Mike thinks about that, because I am thinking biblically. And then I'm like, yes. Fly, little birdie, fly. You know, that's that's the good thing. Um, So the the process is this. uh, First, to recognize why this is an issue. There are plenty of opportunities, uh, for people to do altar calls that are, let's say suboptimal altar calls that are more designed to increase the numbers of people coming forward than they are to increase the number of people getting saved. I've seen this for myself. I think that it's happened many times. I remember a camp where, um, I've several camps, youth camps where they, there was going to do an altar call and it, 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 it was sad how it on a regular basis, I, I, I say this not to be super judgmental about it, but, but just to recognize that this is a genuine issue. On a regular basis, the altar calls at camp were so vague that I don't think the kids knew why they were being asked to go forward or what is required of them or what going forward meant other than that it was some sort of spiritual release. I don't think that's super healthy. I don't think that's super effective. And I don't think it showed very lasting fruit for most of the students. And unfortunately, that's the case for a lot of altar calls because what happens is when you're the guy on stage, you're the band on stage, you're the speaker on stage, and you're at a camp or an outreach event, there's a lot of pressure to measure from yourself and from others to measure your successfulness and whether you'll be invited back, whether people will consider you to be effective or not whether you consider you to be effective or not based on that moment where you get a response of people coming forward and so it's very tempting to try to give them more and more reasons to come forward hey man if you want to give your life to christ i want you to come forward right now i want you to come forward right now and then i could maybe i maybe i widen it a bit more maybe there's just a time for you to rededicate your life maybe it's just refocus your life i'm not always sure what that means you know sometimes i am sometimes i'm not it may, you know t- come forward right now you know, maybe it's maybe it's just you just need victory in a particular little area, right? Maybe it's not your whole life. Maybe it's just one. Maybe there's if there's any sin that you can think of in your entire life. Maybe there's some emotional fulfillment that you want in your life. Perhaps you stubbed your toe on the way in here, and you just want that throbbing pain to stop. Like, just come forward, guys. Everyone, come. We're here for you. And then everyone applauds as you. And you start. You, it turns sometimes into this thing where we've lost the plot. This has caused a big reaction against altar calls in a lot of circles, some circles, because they look at it and they go, okay, I saw the Harvest Crusade, or I saw the, the, the Billy Graham, for those of you who still remember who that is, the Billy Graham uh, Crusade, or I saw this, this, this church camp event, or this thing, and I'm skeptical as to how effective that altar call even was. Yet I think a lot of the people walked out thinking, I'm right with God, but I don't know if they really are in which case maybe it even caused some harm. So I understand that. Now, I've seen altar calls where people are, like I think Greg Laurie's a better example of this because he tends to be a bit more like, no, you're coming forward because you're repenting to put your faith and trust in Jesus. His 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 method is more along the lines of a clear call for a biblical response to the gospel, I think. Um, so okay, now let's go to like the, the biblical answer to these questions. Um, Are altar calls in the Bible? Well, not exactly. I mean, altar calls themselves... Okay, if you use a generic definition, you can kind of find something like this in the Bible. So if your generic definition is to turn to a crowd of people and give them an immediate call to repent and believe in Jesus, yep, Acts chapter 2 does that. Absolutely. In fact, a ton of people got saved at that exact moment, which implies what? That there was a actual visible response like they didn't catch this they didn't necessarily say come and stand here at this location in front of our stage but what they did do was they had some measurable response because they were able to count how many people were added to the lord that day added to the so they were able to actually count the heads so to speak not that that was the motive but they did they, they were able to say hey this is how many people got saved three thousand five thousand acts two acts three acts four you read acts five look at these early passages, like those are massive outreach events. Not exactly planned. Well, planned by God, not by man. Um, So, you know, there's like a response with a visible way of determining that someone was responding to it. So that's interesting. Um, So it'd be hard to rule them out entirely just based upon that parallel in Acts. Now, what about In the more generic sense of, is it biblical? Does it cross any boundaries? I think here it depends on the quality and kind of the altar call. That's where the analysis should take place. Not on whether this should happen or not, but the quality and kind. Did I give a clear gospel presentation? Did I invite them to receive the gospel in a genuine fashion? And if you did, then I think people responding, whether it's going forward to a stage, or if it's praying in their seat, or going home and and thinking about it or whatever, hopefully more than just thinking, but wherever and whenever they respond, I think is up in the air, as far as whether it's an, it's an option to do it. Um, the danger I have, and, and the criticism that most likely comes against ultra calls, which I agree with, is it's too vague, it's too broad, it's too easy, and it's and it doesn't stick. <laughs> and that does happen a lot of the time, because after the event, you're more likely to invite, the, the, the people who organize the event are more likely to invite the speaker back who got the biggest audience response. And that turns it into a game of biggest audience response. And that's not, that's not wise, that's not mature, but it does happen a lot. Uh, number 13, Josh Guo says, I'm starting high school soon. And I feel very nervous to share the gospel in person. Is it wrong for me to just stick to sharing it online where I don't feel nervous at all? Um, Well, Josh, um, I don't wanna like burden you. Um, I'm not trying to create anxiety in you and I understand your nervousness. And I, hey, I went to high school too. Five years, by the way, guys. That's right, I got held back in ninth grade. I'll tell you that story sometime. Um. Yep. <laughs> Some of you were surprised to hear that. The um. The the anxiety of it and the nervousness of it. Um, what I would encourage you to do is read the book of Acts, and read about the stuff that they went through and that they were still willing to stand firm in the gospel. Like I really do encourage you read through the entire book of Acts. Just read through it and see if that doesn't help your perspective and your heart on these issues. In Acts chapter 4, where they're threatened, you know, hey, don't talk about Jesus anymore, and they're beaten. And look at what they pray in Acts 4. Look at how they pray and their attitudes about it. Now, it doesn't mean we're all going to be heroes, but it does give us a direction to point our hearts in and to try to be encouraged in. But I also think this, that um, you don't need to think it's your responsibility to make people respond to the gospel. It's only our job to share it. You don't need to think that you have to share every aspect of the gospel with somebody in every conversation. You just share the truth of, of, of related to whatever is going on in the situation. Is you can share the truth of Christ when it when you have the opportunity. So pray, ask God for boldness, ask God for courage, read the book of Acts, and be patient with yourself, and seek on a long term. Strengthening of your confidence and of your courage that'd be my encouragement Uh, Carmet says I was wondering how you combat the claims against the Apostle Paul if you've heard the claims against him Such as preaching a different gospel than Jesus and the 12 Um, Usually here's the thing Carmet usually when I do hear statements about Paul They're just these big sweeping judgments against Paul that are usually without a lot of detail I'm not saying they're always that, okay? There's obviously someone who's probably gonna to give tons of detail and give you something to respond to. But often, and more often, what I have heard, and maybe what you've seen online, is people saying things like, well, Paul wasn't even a real apostle, like that, he tried to hijack the gospel. Um, like when someone makes a crazy claim like that, I think it's on them to prove it. And so what you should do is you should just say, hey, how did you come to that conclusion? Here's a great, like Greg Kokel question to ask them. How did you come to that conclusion? And let them talk. So interacting with individuals, uh, preferably in person, online interactions can often be very cold and very combative because you're anonymous. But if possible, ask them that question. How did you come to that conclusion? And you need details because I can't respond to a, a general statement like, well, Paul was not really an apostle. Paul, you know, we should throw out his books and he tried to change the gospel of Jesus. Um, a statement like that, I could just respond with, Paul's an apostle. Paul preached, you know, and was appointed by Jesus himself. Paul in, wrote inspired scripture. Like, now we're, what are, we're on equal ground. We're just making claims. <laughs> so I need something more than that. Yeah. I mean, when you go to the New Testament and you start to realize some more details, you realize how hard it's going to be for people to hold this together. So historically speaking, Paul has been embraced by the universal church. Absolutely has been. Doesn't mean there was never one Christian that didn't like him, right? Um, certainly there's always weirdos, but the universal church has. Okay, that does matter. That does matter. That, that seems unlikely if Paul was this false apostle. Like, where's the strand of the of the church, of the true church who holds the true gospel? Where where is it? If if the universal church is all accepted, then what you're suggesting is historically they're just haven't been any Christians until like this guy showed up and was like, Paul's bad. (laughs) So that's one thing to consider. Another to consider is that you have to start cutting out other passages of scripture. Because if Paul's bad, then what you have is the book of Acts is bad. But if Acts is bad, which recounts Peter and the apostles and Paul, then you can't trust Luke because it was written by the same guy. So you've lost one of the gospels. And the book of acts in addition to the letters of paul but you have to get rid of second peter too because in second peter peter says that what paul writes is scripture that's kind of a big deal so you're starting to chop up the word of god massively that's kind of a big deal um in addition to not having probably any real case people will say things but that doesn't mean it's a good case anyway there's a few thoughts for you i hope it helps number 15 lego Lucify says hello isaiah 1921 speaks of egypt repenting and offering jewish sacrifices how can this be we no longer have those sacrifices endless gratitude for your ministry for it introduced me to christ oh wow that is that is that that's wonderful that is difficult to explain how wonderful that is lego Lucify, i i I don't know if that's your real name and maybe it's just not an american name or if it's just a fun name maybe your name is Luke and you like playing Legos. I don't know. Um, but uh, but that's a, a blessing, a blessing to hear. Um, Isaiah nineteen twenty one. I I fear, Luke, that I may not be able to have a good answer for your question today, but I'm not going to pretend I do if I don't. Um, so here it says, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Um. Well, worshiping with sacrifice and offering—it's not specifically that they're sacrificing for their sins. Um, I suppose theoretically, one could say. And I, I don't know. I don't know. That I'm just giving you a quick observation because I can't remember a good answer for this question off the top of my head. It's just not there. Um, but worship with sacrifice and offering. Uh, this there's various different kinds of sacrifices in the Old Testament. So there's sacrifices that could just be. It, it doesn't even have to be under the law exactly. It could just be. Um, we want to worship God, and we're bringing this offering as we worship God. It doesn't have to be for sin; it can be a, a sacrifice of, of of basically joy or gratitude, a thank offering. So those types of things can take place as well, which wouldn't conflict with the idea of Jesus being our sacrifice. Um, but but I mean, I'd have to like reconsider where this is in Isaiah and when the fulfillment is for it and all those questions that I just don't have in my brain so I do apologize for that Um, yeah yeah I'm sorry I'm sorry Lego Luke I don't have a better more thoughtful answer for you I don't want to postulate things and lead people down questionable paths because of it so number 16 Elijah Reynolds says how do I know if I am solidified in my own identity and do you think it is biblically important for people who walk with you in the faith to understand your identity and who you are as a person, Elijah. Um, I wonder what you mean by identity. Like I kind of wonder if, if, if you had to define the word identity, maybe you could do this like as a little project for yourself. Write out the without looking it up in dictionary. Write out the word identity, and write out what you think it means for you. Like as you're as you're using it in the sentence, how do I know I'm solidified in my own identity? What do you mean by identity? Because to me, this is fairly simple. But your second question makes me think that it might be more complicated than that. That you might be thinking about personality and likes and dislikes when you say identity. So my identity, I think, refers to who I am, like my nature. And then, maybe my personality likes and dislikes can be parts of that but it's not the core of that i think the core of my identity is i am a human i am a christian i'm a male i mean i'm not really sure (laughs) that's kind of the core of my identity now do the people you know you said do you think it's important for people who walk with you in the faith to understand your identity and who you are as a person i think they all understand my identity i think they understand it very quickly so maybe you mean something more by identity, by that word, since I think they understand. Like, you know, Elijah, you're probably a, a human male Christian too. So you're like, hey, they do understand my identity. But I feel like relationally, they don't know me that well. Okay, but that's that doesn't mean they don't understand your identity. I think that you're part of a generation that is currently taking that word identity and stretching its meaning into all sorts of other areas that encompass things like preferences and... Um, about your own, your own invented identities of gender and things like that. And then it's like you have to have, you have to come up with all these answers to all these identity questions to be like a full person and then you have to get everyone else to know about it and to acknowledge it in order for you to be validated as a full person. I think that this is all smoke and mirrors. Like personally, I'm just saying, I don't think that's important. It is important that people who know you well, like, you know, that, that your, your family you're close to, your friends you're close to, that they understand your personality more than other people but your identity is pretty easy stuff, I think. So I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, I feel like I'm answering the question from one perspective but you're asking it from another so we're kind of, I don't want us to talk past each other as I'm trying to do this. Um. Yeah, whether you like gaming or, or, or video games or sports, not really part of your identity. Not really, not in my opinion anyways. Um, I want my wife to know my preference between playing soccer and playing a video game. But I don't have to feel like anybody else is missing out on some core part of who I am by not knowing that. So I don't think you have to figure out your identity in that sense. Are you solidified in your own identity? Here's the thing. If Jesus is the center of your life and your purpose, you are solidified in your Christian identity. And that's the most important part. And then you just move forward. And you'll always have people in life who don't understand you that well. Even loved ones, even your spouse sometimes. That's okay. We don't need everyone to understand us because the Lord understands us and he's the core of our identity. Um, number 17, Darina S. says, people encourage me to get baptized ASAP, but I struggle with serious psychological doubts. Should I disregard my doubt and get baptized? Can I take more time? Um, well, you know, when you get baptized, Daria, uh, Darina, excuse me, when you get baptized, Darina, is totally up to you. Right? This is this is that's the. I think this is the nature of baptism. Is it has to be a free will decision that you've made. So it's completely up to you. Um, let me ask you a few questions though that might help you kind of process this as you're thinking through it. So here's a question for you. You said you struggle with psychological doubts that are psychological, meaning they're not intellectual. It's not like you actually think Christianity might not be true, or that I should say you think there's like a decent chance it's not true, right? Psychologically, there's just fears and doubts that are just sitting there on you. Do you think that everyone who gets baptized has to resolve those kinds of doubts before they do? Or is it just you? Like if someone else came to you and was like, hey, I really believe, but I have these psychological doubts. There's more like emotional side of things. Should I get baptized? Would you tell that person, don't, don't, don't get baptized? Or would you be like, no, like you should get baptized. If you if you hold off your that's one question to ask another question to ask is this if you hold off getting baptized Do you think these psychological doubts will become resolved? Stay the same or get worse? Think about that because your baptism itself may have an impact on these things In fact everything you do when it comes to psychology of things the emotional side of things and all that everything you do may exacerbate or make these things better So again, and you might see that I'm hinting at the idea that maybe you should move forward, but I'm I'm not trying to push you towards it. I'm trying to help you understand maybe the reasons why I would say the category of psychology doubts, doubts in the psychology category, that these things, um, one of the harms they cause us is they keep us from doing good and godly things. And that is generally, I think, a bad idea. It generally tends to increase those, those doubts. But not always, and life is complicated, I I grant that. There's a few things for you to think about. Don't get baptized because the people around you are pressuring you to, though. It's okay for um, that to not be the factor. It should be entirely this thing of Jesus. I believe in you. I have my doubts. Should I get baptized? This is about you and Jesus. And to that, I mean, I do think of the scripture where Jesus, he's gonna heal for this man. And he says, All things are possible for him who believes. And this man exp- expresses his own struggle. And he says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't say, Come back to me when you resolve that psychological doubt. Actually, he says, Be healed. And he gives the, which means that this, I believe, yet I feel this fearful unbelief kind of weaving around in my heart but I'm choosing belief, like my will is choosing to trust, even though I still feel these waves going up and down. That is a condition where God will accept you. So if that's your condition, I think that I would encourage you to consider baptism. Yeah. All right, let's go to question number 18. This is from Ken SNZBR who says, Um, Hi, Pastor Mike. I've been wrestling with this passage for a couple months, and I haven't found a solid answer yet. Well, I'm sure in five seconds I'll figure it out. (laughs) We'll see. I don't know. Um, It's in John 20, 17. I can't seem to understand why Jesus calls the Father his God. Okay, okay, so John 20, verse 17. Let's look at that verse together, everybody. So timeline, this is after the death and resurrection of Christ. He's appearing here to Mary, and it's very early on, and he says to her, she sees him in the garden, and he says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Um, <clears throat> so why does Jesus call God the Father my God. I think that the the challenge of this could be resolved in your mind if you understand the nature of the doctrine of the Trinity. So the doctrine of the Trinity holds that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. At the same time, we hold that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, right? But the Father is God. So at any point, you can call the Father God. And Jesus very commonly does. And the the, the Scripture does very commonly calls the Father God. So why couldn't Jesus call the Father my God? Well, it might have been a little bit weird before the Incarnation. Like, I can understand the tension or the, the awkwardness of this. Before the Incarnation, in what way is, within the Trinity, in what way is the... The, the son saying to the father, you are my God. Like that That does seem a little strange. But when the incarnation takes place, Jesus takes on human form. Now he's still God. He's God with us, but he's, but he's human too now. Now he has humanity. And so now he has a new perspective, an additional thing going on in the relationship with the father where he can say, my God. So I think it's because he has that humanity so, um, th- th- this to me answers the question. I-, I I hope you find it settling and answering for you as well. Is to recognize that in the incarnation, there is a relationship between the Father and the Son that is now, in addition, a new degree in that relationship where the Son is incarnated, and so he can say, "My God." And it, and I mean, theoretically, I guess he could have said, "My God," as as you know pre-incarnation. I'm not saying that couldn't have happened, but it definitely makes more sense post-incarnation, at least, at least it does to me. Um, and what's happening in this verse is actually pretty neat because <clears throat> he says, I'm sinning to my father, right, my God, but what he says to them is because he's accomplished so much through his death and his resurrection, he says that my father is what? your father. My God is your God. Jesus, through his death, has Establish the relationship that you have with God but again, He represents you and so through being the perfect son through being the perfect human He has a perfect relationship with the father with God so that you can have a relationship with God and 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 when you see this as something that he's imparting to you You realize why it was important that he said my God and your God so let's go to the next question and this comes from uh, Knight Abraham who says hey, I am just a second yeah. Um, yeah, I I hear you. I'm working on it. Okay. All right. Let's see. No data. Stream is healthy. It says here it's back. Is it back? To you guys, you got me back. Seems to be back. I'm frozen. Okay. Look, I'm gonna back up a bit. Um, and just reread the question, and I'll start the answer again. So so this, this comes from uh, Knight Abraham, who says, I'm an ex-Muslim follower of Christ from Afghanistan. Some Islamic traditions... Great, thank you. Uh, some Islamic traditions... I lost my place. There we go. Uh, felt really spiritual and comforting, such as praying on an Islamic rug, etc. Is it okay if I keep some of those? So at first I just wanted to acknowledge like I understand that the 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 temptation or that I shouldn't I don't want to put it that way like I'm trying to make it negative but I understand the desire to keep some of those traditions. Um, those things can feel very spiritual. But let me ask it to you in a, in a in a totally different way. Let's say that you were formerly Mormon. Okay, so Mormonism is is definitely not Christianity and, and it's incorporated in a lot of specific weird religious things. And the temple rituals, one of them being getting baptized for the dead is something that they do they do on a regular basis. And so um, someone might go to the Mormon uh, temple or the, the 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 baptism location and then get baptized on behalf of a dead person. And they might feel very spiritual. Maybe they did 10 people that day and then they go on their day and they feel really spiritual and good. Is that something that they should do now as a Christian? And the answer is like, obviously not. Right? Because that's It's not just a ritual. It's a ritual that has connected to it unbiblical and false teachings. And it might bring comfort, but maybe just time just needs to go by where you let go of that thing. But what if you have a ritual-type thing that's not connected to any unbiblical teachings? Like something really simple. Like maybe when you pray, and when you prayed in some previous religion, you would always sing your prayers. And so as a Christian, you think... I really would like to sing my prayers and I would be like well, there's nothing really religiously connected to that Like it's just a just a just a slightly different way of doing I don't really have a problem with that So here's my question to you Knight Abraham Can you vet through everything that you've experienced as a Muslim and that you might want to redo or recapture and ask yourself a question? Does this have unbiblical teachings connected to it or is it just an innocuous kind of behavior? that's not really saying anything one way or another. So I don't know why Muslims pray on rugs. I don't know why. I'm not entirely sure why the prayer happens in these particular patterns. I know they pray towards Mecca. That might be something you feel like you want to do. I'd recommend you don't do that as a way of saying, no, Mecca is not the center. Mecca is not the, the, the conduit through which my prayers run or something like that. Um, so I would recommend you specifically rebel against anything that is teaching unbiblical things and that you wait on your, your sort of like, um, nostalgia to catch up to these new Christian practices and remind you of the goodness of those things. Be careful because there's just this tendency we have, like, remember the, the, the Egyptians or the, um, sorry, the Israelites, when they came out of Egypt, they had this major problem. Um, they I was just checking the stream again because it glitched earlier. They um, they immediately wanted to create an idol and worship it. And they wanted to incorporate idolatry into their worship of God. And this was something God absolutely hated, right? That's kind of a big deal. Why did they want to? Like Because in Egypt, they were just used to that sort of thing. So we have a natural human tendency to want to bring things from our past, especially the nostalgia of our of our spirituality that we've had when we were younger. Vet those things very carefully. Make sure they're totally innocuous before considering bringing them into your normal Christian practice. That would be my, my thoughts on that. Number 20. Last question for today. Hopefully the internet lasts. Randy Escalante Garcia says, Pastor Mike, How can we walk in obedience to Christ without uh, falling into a works-based system, a works-based salvation frame of mind? Well, one tip I would give you, Randy, would be to not think that God is distancing himself from you or close to you based upon your current behaviors. So that if you fail in some way, you are not thinking the Holy Spirit is far from me now. I am distanced from God because I've because I failed. And if I living am living more holy or living more righteously, like now I'm closer to God, because now I'm starting to treat my daily practical Christian life like it's based upon my works obedience. And there are, you know, there's various different difficulties and sufferings, and even a a sense of coldness you might feel because of a, a prayerlessness or sin in your life but that doesn't mean your relationship with God is less than Abba Father at any moment. If you're a Christian, you are constantly in that uh, Abba Father, ultimately close to God relationship at all times. Remind yourself of that. Encourage yourself in that. Another thing I'd say is, study the scriptures carefully. Because when I do this, it it, it was when I studied the book of Galatians, like verse by verse, really slow, really slow, (laughs) Uh, you know, every time it mentioned an Old Testament thing, I'd go and read that whole Old Testament story to try to understand the background and everything. You know, like really slow. Um, that is when I understood the the anchor of peace and hope that I had in the Gospel of Christ. When I looked at those things, when I read Hebrews and I study it carefully, when I study the New Testament carefully, I understand the anchor of salvation and peace and constant grace that God has extended towards me. That I. St- According to Romans, it's the grace we stand in. It's the grace in which we stand. I stand in grace at all, at all times. Remember those things, uh, maybe those things would help. I, I hope that helps you guys. I hope you guys have been encouraged. I hope I didn't lose too many too many moments of footage uh, because of whatever internet issues we're having. But I will sign it all off right now. And um, um, look, for Monday, here's my quick announcement. I hope to have my video ready for Monday for the next Women in Ministry video. I'm working to get it ready. I'm going to try and get it ready. I don't know if I will be able to. I'll let you guys know, like in a community post, I'll let you guys know. So possibly Monday for those who even want to watch it live. You, most of you watch it after, so that's fine. But uh, yeah, that's it. Thank you, everybody, so much. Thanks for the mods, for being there to help out. You're very greatly, greatly appreciated. You keep the chat from being a dumpster fire, and uh, I Thank you. <laughs>